a bit younger, I subscribed to this understanding that, you know, God's grace is so amazing. You're going to have to pump me up, bro. Is that working? How's that? Okay. I subscribed to this understanding when I was growing, like a bit younger, that God's grace is so amazing that when we come in contact with God's grace, we would automatically know that we need to change and that we will need to be transformed. And, and it's a beautiful idea, isn't it? That God is so full of grace that when we can't come in contact with God's grace, that there's something inside of us that goes, oh, wow. And I think it's really true. That, that is something that does happen, that when we truly come with all of ourselves, we come into God's presence, we meet with God, something on the inside of us is challenged and has changed. However, something that I've also realized is that us as humans are so good at masking where we are at that we don't really bring all of ourselves to God. That is something that I've been reflecting on. And the whole point of that is that last week we started talking about sin, which is not something that I've spoken about much before. Um, uh, but I started to uh, dive into understanding sin more. And the more I've done that, the more I've discovered for myself the pockets and the areas that are sinful in my life. And the more I've done that, the more I've gone, man, I need God. And the reason for that as well is that I have discovered that we, that I have been dis, um, defining sin really quite inappropriately or very unfully. I, I've been defining sin as disobedience to God, as, you know, just simply doing things that are wrong. When we, as we discussed yes, uh, last week, not yesterday, uh, last week, that sin is defining good and evil for ourselves. It is robbing God of His divine right uh, to define good and evil and for us to then go, no, no, I'm defining good and evil for myself. You guys remember that? We also talked about some other definitions which might be helpful. We looked at Tim Keller's uh, definition, which is this, I define sin as building your identity, your self-worth and happiness on anything other than God. And he also says, sin isn't only doing bad things. It's more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. And so what I've discovered is that in my life and in many people's life, I would say in all of our lives because we all share uh, this human condition, is that we have this desire to define good and evil for ourselves. And what we define as good, we pursue. And what we define as evil, we shun. We push away. But in so doing, quite often, we are not defining what God is saying is good and we're, uh, as good, and we're not defining what God is saying is evil as evil in our lives. We have switched things up. We have made things easier and more comfortable for ourselves, perhaps. Or we have taken things and we have pushed certain things aside that God is saying, you need to think about this. You need to know about this. And so through the series, this is not about... Um, 
uh, uh, three weeks of Nate bashing people for being sinners. No, that is not it at all. This is three weeks of us understanding how sin has so blinded us and what God is actually trying to do in our lives or has already done in our lives, both of those things. And, and, and with what I dis, uh, was, was sharing last week is hopefully going to lead us to a place of loving Jesus more, and committing our lives to Jesus more. So you're ready for that? We're going to go further into it today. And today is not going to be pretty. Just letting you know. You are going to have to confront some stuff in your life. Um, and then next week is going to get a little bit better. <laughs> sort of. But we'll wrap it up next week. But today we're going to go a little bit deeper. I think we just need to pray first. Because I hope that you're going to catch this from the right heart. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I thank you that, that you have conquered sin. You conquered sin and death. We know that because you've described that in the Word. But even so, God, I, hope, I pray that you help us to see how we can still lean into sin, that we can still allow sin to be whispering into our ears and, and, and pulling us away from what you are wanting to do and accomplish in our lives. And so, God, I pray that today you help us to understand this from the perspective that you are drawing us in. You're not pushing us away, but that you are drawing us in. I pray that your love, your grace is something that we uh, can focus on and see more clearly uh, through the teaching of your word. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're going to understand sin a little bit deeper today. And uh, firstly, I want to point out that the first mention of sin in the Bible is not in Genesis 3 that we described last week. It, it wasn't in the Garden of Eden. It actually is in Genesis 4, which is somewhere outside the Garden of Eden. And it wasn't Adam and Eve that were first described as sinful, even though later on in the Bible we hear about that. But the first mention of sin in the Bible, which is a really important thing, because when something is mentioned for the first time in the Bible, there's a, a, a practice known as the law of first mention. It, it is the first time something is mentioned in the Bible it is when it is being given definition in the Bible, all right? And so when we hear about sin for the first time, this is giving us an understanding of sin. And in Genesis chapter 4, this is what happens. We have two brothers, Cain and Abel. And um, uh, Cain is a, a farmer. He looks after the crops of the land, and he's the one that does all of that ground stuff. They call him uh, a worker of the ground. Abel is uh, more of um, the animal lover, and he is the one that looks after maybe the sheep and the cows and, and all of that. He is the one who looks after the flocks. Now, they both decide that they want to give God an offering. And so uh, Abel is described as taking the best of the flock and bringing it to God, whereas Cain just brings an offering. It doesn't really describe much about this offering. And uh, what it then goes on to say, what the Bible then goes on to say, is that God looks favorably on Abel's offering, but on Cain's offering, he does not. This leads some people to think that God likes animal sacrifices more than veggies. I think that there's a level of truth in that. I think uh, we should all enjoy our meat uh, because the Bible does say that. Eat the fat and drink the sweet and give portions to those who are weak. It is in the Bible. Um, but really what is going on here is that as we have, this, as we have seen able when he gives an offering to God, he gives the best. It cost him something. 
Whereas Cain probably just gave a portion. He's like, all right, this is it. Um, all right, whatever. And so God looks favorably on Abel's offering, but not on Cain's. And this makes Cain really, really angry. And so this is a God coming to Cain and, and having a discussion with Cain because he sees that Cain is angry. This is Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 to 7. Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And this is the first mention of sin in the Bible. Now, Cain doesn't actually listen to God, and he ends up killing Abel. All right, he actually murders Abel. I want you to just have a think about that, though, because quite often when I think about this story, which is a pretty famous story, I read it a number of times, and I think about God saying, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? If you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door, etc. I thought that God was talking to Abel about sin after the murder. This is before the murder. This is about the offering that Cain and Abel brought to God. And God says to Cain, if you do what is right, will you not be accepted? If you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. And this is in regards to the sacrifice. That's not very nice, is it? Because we can all go like, come on, Cain, killing a person, that is so wrong. But how many of us go, oh, I forgot to give my offering this week. Uh, what have I got left? Oh, yeah, here, have, have a little bit, God. How many of us go to that and say, mm, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. I'm not telling you how much to give, what to give. I'm not telling you anything like that. That is not what the purpose of this message is. But I want you to think about this. This is us coming with our lens of what is good and evil. And we see the whole thing about offering as like an above and beyond. Like if you give anything to God, that is already good. I mean, God is saying, the way that you give to me, I've got a definition of what good and evil is. And you need to follow what is right. If not, hmm. But I want to make two key observations about sin from this passage. And they come from two different contrasts that I see. The first contrast is that God contrasts doing right and being accepted with not doing what is right and being in a battle with sin. Okay? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? If you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door, desires to have you, but you must rule over it. You must fight. You must dominate sin. You're in this battle. You see, when we think about good and evil, when we think about right and wrong, quite often we get to this place of, we understand that right is equated with acceptance, but then quite often we equate wrong with rejection. This is not how the Bible describes sin. Sin does not lead God to reject you. Sin leads us to reject God. Sin leads us onto this path where we are going, God, I do not see you as good anymore, and so I'm going to push you away from me. We are the ones that reject God the more we lean into sin. 
And I think this is actually really, really, really key for us because quite often when we are living in sin, sometimes I think there are people that go, I'm already so sinful, I need to deal with how broken and rubbish I feel about myself before I can present myself to God. That thought in itself is sin, because it's pushing us away from God. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? You see, God actually, when Cain was really angry, God does an intervention in that moment. He comes to Cain and he teaches Cain, right now, buddy, you've not done something right, and I'm not rejecting you. You've already given me a poor offering. But I'm not rejecting you. I'm coming to you and I'm teaching you about what happens from here. If you were like your brother putting me first in your life, you will have communion with me. But if you don't like what you did, be careful. You're on the slippery slope. You're going to be battling with sin. Sin's going to continue to tell you what is good and evil instead of listening to me. So right now, you're already in the trenches with sin. Abel, Cain, who are you, Cain? So listen. Cain doesn't. He slipped down that slope. He listened to sin. I think this is really important for us to understand because sin is not about this outside action. It's about the desires and the attitudes and the perspectives that we hold in our heart. That's primarily what sin, what the battle with sin is about, is every time I redefine good and evil for myself, I am sinning and I am pushing God away. But every time I'm coming to God and I'm saying, God, you know what is good, you know what is evil, teach me. And then acting out of that, I am actually saying, God, I want to be closer to you. I want to be closer to you. And so that is something that we can all practically take away from this. Are you coming to God to define what is good and evil, or are you defining good and evil for yourself? I'm going to go to a place that you might not like. When we suffer in our lives, we often define that as evil. And we often define it as, God, you take this away. That is not the way that the Bible describes suffering. Yes, quite often we see the miraculous power of God overriding the suffering in a person's life. And that is great. That is something worth talking about. But very often in the Bible, we hear of suffering for the sake of the gospel. And God says, that is good. How do we deal with stuff like that? Are you going, God, it's okay if I suffer because I'm living for you. If you don't have that perspective, you might be leaning into sin. And I'm not saying this to condemn you. I'm saying this because like what God did, sin crouches at all of our doors when we redefine good and evil for ourselves and we enter into this war. But there's a second contrast that I really want to point out because this is interesting. See, God contrasts doing what is right with not doing what is right. And that's really interesting because God didn't contrast doing what is right with doing what is wrong. He contrasted with not doing what is right. 
So in this kind of a way, you know, he was talking to Cain about giving. And so doing what is right is giving God the best. Not doing what is right is not giving God my best. Doing what is wrong is stealing. You following this train of thought? God doesn't say, do this and you'll be accepted. Do wrong and you'll be in the trenches with sin. He says, do this and you'll be accepted. Do this middle ground stuff. Not doing what is right and you'll be in the trenches with sin. This is not an easy word. We are not in a battle between doing right or wrong. We're in a battle of doing right or not doing what is right. Most of us are not in a place where we are killing people, stealing from the poor. We're not in that place. But that is not what God is concerned about. He's more concerned about this middle ground where we think that we are safe when we are battling with sin, when we are not doing what is right. Let me give you another analogy, and hopefully it doesn't give you PTSD from all the times that you've done exams, but you are doing a multiple choice exam, right? You get given four options. Option, one of the options is absolutely right. You're gonna get points for that. Three other options are all wrong. Doing what is right and getting the points for getting it right is finding the right option and ticking it, right? Doing what is wrong is picking any one of the other wrong options. And so you can do that and you'll get no points. Guess what happens when you leave that question blank? I don't know. Which one's right? I don't know. I better not do any of them. You get no points. It's the same as if you ticked the wrong answer. You don't get negative points for ticking the wrong answer in a multiple choice exam right? Except for some weird places. But generally speaking, you don't get negative points for getting the wrong answer. You only get points for getting the right answer. And I'm not talking about God having a point system. I'm trying to draw out this sense that we quite often define, uh, I'm either doing what is right or I'm doing what is wrong. And that to some extent is correct. But what I'm trying to point out here is that the, the, the contrast is not between right and wrong, is between right and not doing right. You see, theology has developed this understanding about sin that I think is extremely important for us. There is the sin of commission. Commission, which means that I am acting, doing something that is wrong. So stealing is a sin of commission. Uh, murdering someone is a sin of commission. Lying to someone is a sin of commission. But there's also another way that we sin, and that is the sin of omission where you omit the actions that is right, that you are meant to be doing. And so every time God is saying, this is what you are meant to be doing, and you go, no, I'm not going to do that. Maybe because of fear, maybe because of pride, maybe because you're too busy and you've got other priorities. Whenever you do that, that is a sin of omission. Sin is both committing something that is wrong and not doing what is right. We've got to raise the standard for ourselves as Christians. We can't read into, Bi into the Bible this neutral, safe ground that so many of us have. I'm not that bad a person. Well, you're not even a good person either. God is not looking for neutral people. 
God is not looking for safe people. He's looking for people that will listen to Him and obey Him. And we've got to get back in our faith system, in our understanding of God, that that is who He is looking for. Anything less is sin. Anything less is sin. Anything less is sin. And God's not looking for excuses. I don't think Cain could go to God and say, I had a bad crop this year, so, you know, you get a couple of beetroots and maybe a couple of asparaguses. And that's all I've got, God, and say, can you just be lenient this year? No. God was like, you either accept it because you did what is right or you don't do what is right and you're in the trenches of sin. It's pretty black and white here. I mean, I'm not the judge and executioner in the room. I don't know how God's going to judge your actions. But I know that for myself, when I have said God that's too hard, God's revealed that as sin. Why? Because I was relying on my strength. I was relying on my ability. I was relying on what I thought was good for me. I didn't want to risk certain things that were important to me that God was saying, you lay on the altar. I've got no excuses with God. And I want to live that way. But I want to also deepen our understanding of sin. And so I do have to move on to a couple of things that are hopefully going to help you to understand this whole relationship between us and God and how sin actually comes in between us and God. I've already talked about defining good and evil for ourselves, but the Bible actually goes a little bit deeper than that as well. All right, so let's get into it. In in, in the Bible, we talked last week about the word kata, which is to miss, and and that is what is translated as sin very often in our Bible. Please go listen to the podcast because I am building a lot on what we spoke about last week. Another word that the Bible uses for sin is the word transgression. Anyone came across the word transgression? How many people have used the word transgression this last millennia? (laughs) I don't know. I've not used the word trans. You have transgressed against me. Like, what does that even mean? Now, sometimes transgression is also translated as rebellion or trespass. Um, and, and, And that kind of brings it a little bit more into our understanding. The Hebrew word for this is the word pesha, P-E-S-H-A, pesha. And, and the Bible describes uh, uh, Pesha this way. In 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 1, we read, After Ahab's death, Moab rebelled against Israel. Pesha against Israel. So you, we see that there is this uh, kind of pushing away, right? However, this is really interesting. The word um, Pesha, you don't find in the Hebrew translation as you Pesha against someone. You don't rebel against you. Pesha with someone. That's how the word Pesha is used in the Hebrew. You Pesha with someone. Moab, Pesha with um, Israel. And why they're saying that is because the word Pesha is particularly about an agreement that two people have. And so when you are going to violate that agreement, you are Peshering with that person. It is thought about in the context of a relationship. 
So when we see the word transgression, what we are supposed to be seeing is that there has been a violation of a trust between two people or two groups of people. It is not just I have hurt you, but I have hurt you in the way that is violating the relationship that we have. And it's really, really important. Another way that the Hebrew uh, Bible expresses this is that when you steal from someone, it's called robbery. It's a bad thing. But when you steal from a neighbor, it's not robbery anymore. It's pesha. Why? Because in the community of uh, uh, God's people, if you violate the agreement, the unsaid, by the way, agreement between neighbors, you are already breaking covenant relationship. God has a different and a higher standard for relationships than I dare to think about. God has a way of thinking about how we are meant to be neighbors to each other that freaks me out because I don't know if I could ever properly live up to those arrangements. And so in that way, God also has a covenant relationship with us. That every time we sin, the Bible describes it as a breaking of trust, a violation of the covenant relationship that we have with God. And God is really big on this. You know, in, in, in Jesus' time, in Jesus' time, he teaches about the, um, the Lord's Prayer, right? And then he goes on to give this teaching. It's found in Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 to 15. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, when I used to read this and I see the word sins, I think about someone that does something pretty evil against me. And so I'm often quite in a, in a space where I'm like, yeah, that's okay. No one has stolen from me. No one has murdered me. You're supposed to laugh. (laughs) No one has done something that is that evil. But that word there is the word pesha. When I have got any beef with someone because they have violated my trust in any way, shape, or form, and I hold on to that pesha, God is saying, I remember how you peshered against me. So I want you to think right now, and some of you are possibly going to break down, at all the people you do not like and are pushing away. That is what this verse is all about. It's not about the person who lied to you. It's the person that you do not want to be in relationship with anymore because they violated your trust. And in the same way, in the same way, in the same way, God remembers how I'm violating his trust. I don't know about that. I don't know if I like that. This should be heavy. This shouldn't be like, I'm all right. You're not all right. None of us are all right. This is not easy stuff, but this is the standard that God is holding us to in the community that we live in. And it's heavy. I do want to point something out, though. Because to Pesha means that there is a relationship and a trust. And so what God is also saying is that He trusts us to be in relationship with Him. When we don't understand that God has a relationship with me, that's already Pesha. 
Why? Because if I don't know someone has a relationship with me and I don't reciprocate, that means that there is no coming together. That is pressure. How are you going to God? How's your relationship with God? How are you understanding His trust and the desire for relationship with you? I love the song that we sang about what is Savior. It's like that, that I could entertain your greatness, that God desires to be in relationship with you. Yes, He trusts me to be in relationship with Him. God is a sucker for punishment. Now, that's what I think. But that's how it is described in the Bible. But this also highlights what God's grace does. In Romans chapter 5, verse 15, it says, But the gift is not like the trespass. A gift is not like the violation of trust. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? What we need to understand is that God is not forgiving your bad deeds. God is re-establishing His trust with you. God is re-establishing His trust with you. When we talk about grace, it is not about, God, please forgive me for the bad things I've done. It's, God, take me back into your arms. It's saying that His gift is so great that it overflows so that all of us, through the death of Jesus Christ, the establishment of the covenant is done. Is done. Us as Christians need to understand I am in covenant with God because of His grace. And you know what? Have a think about this. I might be unfaithful, but God is always faithful. That's what the Bible says. So with this new covenant, I might pressure with God. I might violate the covenant, but He never violates the covenant that He has made with me. Grace flows into this relationship that I am meant to have with God. So I don't care if you don't like it, because God has chosen to be in relationship with you. You can push back, and God still chooses to allow His grace to overflow that we might be together. God doesn't just want to forgive you. He wants to love you. When we don't understand that, we just simply see God as a judge, not as our Heavenly Father. And there's something that needs to be changed inside of here. I've got one more word that I want to share with you because it's also really important. And that is the word iniquity. Another word that we never use in our normal lives over the last millennium, I believe. Anyone ever said to someone, you have committed iniquity against me? No one? Good. 
because you're weird if you do. Iniquity is also sometimes translated as wickedness or guilt or sin. And the Hebrew word for iniquity is the word avon, A-V-O-N. Some of you might recognize that in the sense that uh, in Australia we have the avon, well, we don't call it avon descent, we call it the avon descent. But it's kind of like if that comes to mind, that's good because the avon descent is about you going down all these white rapids and in this really windy river, right? Avon means bent. That's literally all it is. The river is bent, the river is avon. That's how the Hebrew language would describe it. And, um, and, and so it's used very often on uh, describing paths. So for example, in Lamentations 3 verse 9, he has barred my way with blocks of stone, he has made my paths crooked or avon. The, the path is crooked, is bent, is avon. And um, so uh, the Bible often uses this word to describe that a person is not walking in accordance with God's ways. You have bent away from God's ways. You have gone avon. Okay, that, does that make sense? Now, how the Bible uses this word in, um, is also really interesting because when the Bible uses the word punishment, it's often translated from the Hebrew description of God visits your iniquity upon you. He visits your avon upon you. So take the, let me describe it this way. If this is God's way, and I'm kind of traveling this way, and I avon, Punishment is not God taking a stick and beating you. God, punishment in, in biblical terms is often that you go down that way, you will experience the consequences of going down that way. That is God visiting your avon upon you. He is no longer going to protect you from the consequences. I think in God's grace, I don't know how many times I've at the very least, gone like that in terms of God's ways. And I don't know how many times God's grace has covered my avon. But then there are also times that I've gone down this path and I've kept going and God visits my avon upon me. This is justice. When we think about avon and we think about punishment, what needs to come to mind is not that God is angry or God is fickle-minded, but it's God is just. We would want a God to establish what is right, and we would want a God who is sovereign over us to ensure that when people don't do what is right, that they would suffer the consequences. It makes sense, doesn't it? Who wants a God who would just let everyone do whatever they want to do? You want to murder someone? Go ahead. My grace is sufficient for you. No. I want a God who is like, you want to kill people? I'm going to stop your life right there so you don't kill anyone. That's kind of like in a very simplistic way how I think a God of justice would operate. And so God says, I will visit your avon upon you when you are living in crookedness and in iniquity, your avon will be visited upon you. But, but, actually, before I go into the but, that did not sound right. I want to get, like, when we talked about Cain and Abel just at the start of the message, when God was talking to 
Canaan saying, if you don't do what is right, sin is crouching your door, it desires to have for you, and Cain follows that path. What happens to Cain after that, if you read on, is that he's banished, and he's left to be a wanderer. He has no home. He has no family. He has no protection. He is living in constant fear and anxiety. Is that God being unfair? No, that's God visiting his Avon upon him. That's what Avon is all about. And this picture is really important because God deals with our Avon in this way. In Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6, this is describing the suffering servant, which is really uh, um, a prophecy about Jesus. And it says this, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we consider him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, our pressure, and he was crushed for our avon. See, that's another picture of how avon works. When someone is living in avon, the Bible describes them as being avon themselves, bent, because of the load of their sin. Okay? And so in this picture, when it says that he was crushed for iniquity, what's the picture here? The avon that was visited upon me, that makes me avon, is now being placed on Jesus. It's now being paid to Jesus. But this doesn't stop there. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray, each of us turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him, on him, our Avon. This is not me just making this up. This is the Hebrew word descriptions for sin that we lose when we start using words that we don't understand, like trespass and iniquity. The picture of what Christ did is that when we pressured him, pressured with him, we pushed him away, he was pierced for our pressure. When we are living in crookedness and the weight of our sin is on our shoulder, Jesus took that upon him even though it crushed him. And what is the outcome of it? It says the punishment that brought us, what? Peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We need to understand the usage of this verse. This verse is not meant to be simply used whenever you are praying for someone who is sick and saying, Jesus, by his stripes you are healed. No, no, no. In the context of this verse, it goes far deeper than this. It is saying that when we pressure with God and when we avon from God, we are broken people. We are meant to be the pierced and crushed ones. But because he's the one that was pierced and crushed, I now have peace. The Hebrew word for peace, as many of us know, is the word shalom. And shalom doesn't just mean I feel good about myself, I'm living in harmony. It means I am whole. I am 
whole. So the crushing and the piercing that I'm meant to have, that I probably already carry, Jesus took it on him so that I don't have to be broken anymore. What did Jesus do when he suffered? He took my suffering that was meant to be mine. When we say Jesus redeemed me, we are saying I was meant to be on the cross, but he took my place. Why do we have to have a suffering God? Because we have a God that desires covenant relationship with us. Not a bent, broken, peers, lousy human, but a whole human that he restores. The grace of God, don't cheapen it. It's not just simply about saying, God, forgive me for I've done wrong. The grace of God is, God, thank you that you've made me whole that you have dealt with my Pesha and my Avon, even though I pushed you away, even though I've walked away from you, you're still doing all that you can to bring me close. Next week, we're going to talk about repentance. We're talking now kind of in a frame of mind that maybe deals with our past, Tomorrow we're going to deal with, not tomorrow, next week we're going to deal with our now and our future and why God demands repentance from us. But in this moment in time, the grace of God deals with any distance that has come between me and Him. I want to say that again. The grace of God has dealt with any distance that has come between me and him. Any distance I now feel, it's not because God is far away, but it's because maybe there's something in me that understands that I was the one that transgressed against God and decided to walk my own path. And God says, I'm meeting you there. I'm meeting you there. I'm finding you. I'm pursuing you. And I'm helping you understand that I have made you whole. The punishment... that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Can we get the band up this morning? The band's going to play quietly for a moment. Thanks, guys. I wanted to read out Psalm 51. I felt this on my heart during the worship. And I want you to take some of those concepts that we've been talking about and have them in mind as I read these words. Because some of these things actually will help you deepen what God has actually done and doing in your life. This was written by David after he had committed adultery and murdered a man. 
but his sin was brought before him, and he writes this. You just close your eyes and just listen to these words. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit, one that would pursue after you, God, to sustain me. God, I pray that this morning that we understand that you have dealt with the distance between us and you. I pray to God that there will be something resounding inside of us. That God, that we are not living our lives. We are living a life that was purchased by you. You took our woundings, every space that we have been pierced, every bone that has been crushed and laid that upon yourself that we might be whole. So God, I pray that when we worship you, we don't worship you with just simple words. We don't worship you like you like your ears to be tickled by us. But God, I pray that we will worship in spirit and in truth. We would sing in a way that comes from our heart because we understand that God, you desire something so much more. And I want to be able to give it to you. Help me, God, to live in a way that Paul writes, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Help me to echo the words of John the Baptist, that you might be greater and that I might be less. So God, I pray that we will have a boldness to live the way that you have called us to. Why don't we stand this morning? I'm going to pray. I'm going to close here. But I feel like there are some people that actually need to learn to worship 
in this moment. Beck talked about the joy of salvation. Why is it the joy of salvation? Is because we have finally realized or we get what Christ has done. And there is great celebration and there is great joy because of what Christ has done in us. I love that David was writing that in the Old Testament before Jesus came. He already had a revelation that living with God is the best thing possible. And so he wrote song after song, praising God and lifting Him high. I wonder what we should be doing now that we are living on the other side of the cross, that when we get to sing praise to God. It shouldn't be about hype. It's not about just how emotional I feel, but it is an expression from my heart and my soul. God, I can't do life without you. God, you are amazing and I want to be in relationship with you. So today, some of you worship. Worship like you never have before. Raise your hands, lift your voice, kneel down, do something because God deserves your praise and so much more. God, I pray that we come to a realization, a heartfelt revelation of how much your love is for us. And so, God, we worship you and we lift you up. I pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Come on, church. Why don't you worship? And when you spend time with God, have morning peace, sign your kids out. But worship, worship, worship in this place. Ben, why don't you lead us? We hope you've enjoyed this week's message. Follow us on Instagram at The Lift Church or on Facebook at Lift Church Perth. That will give you all the up-to-date information about what's happening in the life of our church. Thanks again for listening. God bless.